You're listening to Radio Influence. It's week three of the college football season, and it's time for another edition of Rush the Field, a college football podcast for you, the college football fan. I'm Scott Seidenberg, alongside Chris Landry, veteran coach and scout from LandryFootball.com. And Chris, the games are starting to heat up. September is in full swing, and pretty soon we're going to be headed towards the fall months and eventually the college football playoff rankings. Yeah, I tell you, nothing goes quicker than... The college football season is we're going to be turning around. You're so right. It's going to be week eight before you know it and week seven. And we're thinking, where'd the season go? And, you know, in the early part of the season, it's it's definitely a feeling out process, but it's a learning process to really see how good these teams are. And the toughest thing to get people to understand that you never stay the same, either get better or you get worse. So as you look about the landscape of college football, you think, you know, how this is going to play out based upon what's happened to this point. And it's not going to work that way because the rate of which teams get better or do not will generate the surprises uh, coming forward or the lack of thereof. Now we start this episode like we do each and every episode. And that is looking back on the previous week's games. And the one game that I want to start with Chris was the Texas A&M Clemson game. And I'll tell you this, when I watch Texas A&M play, It's not so much about the result of the game, which they were a two-point conversion away from forcing a tie against the number two team in the nation, but I saw a different Texas A&M program than we've seen in recent seasons. And I think that says a lot about what Jimbo Fisher has brought to this program because they're not just a talented football team now. They are a talented program. We all know how Jimbo Fisher recruits, but I sensed a different attitude, a different confidence, a swagger about this team and their fan base. I know it's just two games so far watching here with the Jimbo Fisher era, but so far, Chris, for me, this is off to a great start. Well, I think the first year is always a foundation setter, and the foundation is definitely being set. I think the way the team fights and fights through versatility um, lots of toughness, mental toughness, physical toughness. Uh, you can see the, uh, I think the advanced quarterback development of Kellen Mann, um, the ability, they've got some receivers and tight ends that can make some plays, um, defensively under Mike Galco playing with good technique. They've got some talent, uh, but there's no doubt about it that they are putting together a foundation of something that's really good. You talked about his recruiting. I've mentioned this before on this podcast. Right now, they have the number one recruiting class in the country. And I don't know if folks heard about this, but just to give you an idea of the possibilities and the resources of Texas A&M, Forbes came out with a list of the most valuable college programs, meaning the money, just like they come out with the NFL teams. Mm -hmm. Texas A&M is number one in the country. It's amazing. $264 $264 million. You know who is number two? Texas. And it's always Texas as number one, so that's surprising. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, let, let me repeat this. Texas A&M, $264 million. Texas is two, $173 million. By almost $100 million more, that's the infrastructure and the money and the resources. So it gives you an idea that how things are bigger in Texas. And, and certainly, if you look at where that program is, and they, you look at the money they paid Jimbo Fisher, it's a drop in the bucket as to what they 
have and the resources that they have, the support that they have. Now, I agree with you. Uh, things are looking good, and this is one of those things that just looks different. Don't overreact to early you know, results or whatnot, but uh, you can, I think, expect success gradually and long-sustained at A&M under Jimbo Fisher. Boy, I think that move to the SEC certainly has worked out financially for for Texas A&M. Now, let's talk about Clemson. They escaped with the victory. I thought they played really well at times. I thought they had some lapses at times. I continue to be impressed with the way that Dabo is juggling his two quarterbacks. He knows what Kelly Bryant brings to the table. Obviously, he had a phenomenal year last year, but Trevor Lawrence as highly recruited as you could be as a quarterback in this country, and he comes in and his first pass of the game throws a touchdown. <laughs> you can't write the script like this, Chris. And he's going to have to juggle these two, much like Nick Saban's going to have to do throughout the remainder of this season. But so far through the first two games, I've been impressed with how Dabo is handling both of them. Yeah, I, listen, I thought AM's offensive line hung in there pretty well. That's a great defensive line. Oh, they're the they fastest well. defense in the country. They played very, very well up front defensively. They played good defensively the entire night, which makes the whole performance of AM that much more impressive. Offensively, uh, they've had some big plays. They they were sporadic at points uh, at points in times in the game. Listen, I, I think Kelly Bryant is is important to what they do because he stabilizes their offense. I do think that for Clemson to advance in the playoffs and get to where ultimately they want to be, it's probably gonna they're gonna need more consistency and big plays out of the passing game, and that's Trevor Lawrence. Yep. So going forward, it's about getting him enough reps and enough work so that he can progress into that uh, at the end of the year, but not at the point of risking a game in which you may not even make it to that point. So we'll see. They've got Georgia Southern and Tech and Syracuse, and you know, I, I think that they can manage through this ACC schedule. Um, but you know, and they always have that game. It seemingly that they, you just don't know whether they woke up in time or what have you. And yeah, like that's that, that can be Clemson. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, but but this is really a this is a, an outstanding team that's definitely playoff caliber. Yeah, fastest defense in the country. I think you know when you look at their defensive linemen, their linebackers, they they get after the football. Another team, Chris, that's very fast. The Georgia Bulldogs, they went on the road to South Carolina. You and I previewed that game last week, and we thought it could be a good test for that Georgia team. Well, they passed with flying colors rather easily. They did. They dominated the game. And one area that I thought, and listen, I I think emotion has a great deal to do with college football success. It's certainly leading into a game and whatnot. But the reality is, uh, you can only win so much on bravado, uh, really how you play your team speed, your play at the line of scrimmage uh, is ultim- going to be the ultimate decider in most of these games unless you just play poorly. George is a significantly better football team, significantly better on the offensive line, uh, on the defensive line. They've got greater depth. They've got greater speed. They've got more playmakers. South Carolina has some. South Carolina didn't play their best ball. But a lot of it has to do with that they have to be really aggressive at times uh, and probably got away out of their comfort zone a little bit because they had to. Georgia forced them out of it. Big plays and, you know, everyone always looks after the game from their standpoint of their team. Well, if we did A, B, C, D, and E, that could have changed it. Well, yeah, that, but A, B, C, D, and E happened because you're not quite where this other team is. And that's where Georgia is. They're an elite team right now. 
Um, they're playing as good as anybody in the country. Yes, they're young on defense, but they are good. And for goodness sakes, they are loaded at receiver, and they've got more running backs. I mean, they're Alabama-like. This mm. is the team, even more so than Clemson in my mind, that plays like Alabama, prepares like Alabama, attacks on game day like Alabama, finishes in the fourth quarter like Alabama, and plays with that intensity regardless of who they're playing against, Austin P or South Carolina or this week against Middle Tennessee. Uh, that's what Georgia is, and good luck getting them because they're not going away. They're going to they're here to stay. Colorado goes on the road, Chris, and beats Nebraska late in the game. This was as exciting a finish that you're going to find in week two of the college football season. It was just the first game for Nebraska, though, because they had the weather cancellation of game one. So first game for Scott Frost coming back, first first game for Adrian Martinez as their quarterback. How would you sum up their performance against Colorado? Well, first of all, I thought Colorado was outstanding. Steven Montez is very underrated. If you hadn't seen him play, uh, he's simply phenomenal, and he's off to a really good start. I, it, folks, if you don't, if you haven't got a chance, do yourself a favor, get in front of a TV and watch number three, LaVisca Chenault. Mm. He's a sophomore receiver from DeSoto, Texas at Colorado. He's the best player that they've had there in probably 20 years. He's one of the very top receivers in this country, and he has just been phenomenal the first couple of weeks. From Nebraska's standpoint, a lot of positives. Uh, I thought Martinez played well before he and then he went out with an injury. He moved the team well, um, got lots of plays offensively, lots of balance, but way too many mistakes. Had the turnovers in there, uh, a couple of drops. Uh, the defense didn't make – defense was athletic and flew around. You see some positives. But, Scott, they didn't make the plays on third downs when they needed to, didn't get off the field, and that was the ultimate difference in the game going forward. Though, it's going to be about Adrian Martinez's health. They got no other scholarship quarterback on the roster at Nebraska. So they're competitive with him. Without him, this is going to be, you know, growing pains for this Nebraska team. But I like what I see in terms of the positives. But you see the youth. You see the mistakes that if you're Nebraska, you hope it has something to do with the fact that it was your first game of the year. Yeah. But they got, they, listen, this is not a dominant team that can make those type of mistakes and get away with it. It got them. Another thing I liked, it was just so great watching these two big eight teams play. Yeah, it's it, a it lot of felt fun. Like it, you felt the energy, right? It was like this old school rivalry yes. renewed. You, you felt it as you were watching that game. I thought that was the most exciting part for me as a fan watching that game was just feeling the old school nature of that rivalry. I closed my eyes and saw Tom Osborne and Mike McCarthy. <laughs> you mean you didn't see student body rights? Yeah, <laughs> I saw a little of that too. You can't help it when you see those guys. Uh, a final thing on that is can can Scott Frost do similar things with Martinez than that he did with Mackenzie Milton at Central Florida? Oh, I, I think maybe even more. I mean, he absolutely can. Um, again, we need to see from a health standpoint where, where things are going to go. But I, I think this is going to be a slow rebuild in, in, in kind of establishing the type of program that he wants. Now, let me say this. I, I think it, it will be a, a fun to watch offensively. I think Scott is going to do a good job with Martinez and, and, and eventually get even more playmakers. But what they're going to have to do, in my view, they're going to have to become 
not just explosive, but a better running team because they're going to have to build a defense and they're going to have to, again, get back to expanding their recruiting base and, and be a national recruiting operation again where they can go out and get some playmakers on defense. Because to me, when I think of the great Nebraska teams, everybody thinks of, you know, running the option out of the eye and mm-hmm. and, and, and just running down here on the great quarterbacks that could run and throw. I think of the black shirts on defense. And, and if they're going to be a real player, if they're going to be where Wisconsin is or better, that is maybe the team to beat in the West of the Big Ten going forward, they're going to have to recruit like it. I don't think that it's going to get to where people maybe expect it's going to be if they just want to be this up-tempo, run-the-football, spread-you-out type uh, where you're winning you know, 45-38. That doesn't fly. That, that, that flies in the Big 12 today. Yeah. That doesn't fly in the Big 10. And nope. so going forward, listen, you can't expect – anything other than getting the most out of what they have right now on this roster. But going forward, get some more daddies on that defensive side. And I think if that running game balance with a good um, explosive offense, that can allow you to be more competitive quicker and be a real factor that I know Husker fans are looking forward to. And probably the biggest story of last week for the first time since 1986, Kentucky wins a game against Florida in the swamp. Unbelievable in terms of the upset factor, but maybe this shouldn't be considered a big upset here in 2018, Chris. Well, here's the thing about it. Let's take a look at Kentucky. And gosh, I remember the last time they won in Gainesville. That was 1979. (laughs) And and it it didn't seem like it was that long ago. And and obviously, I got to look at the calendar and say, well, yeah, it was. And it was. Kentucky's got uh, quietly a number of NFL players on their roster. This is a program that's been developed well. Mark Stoops, there's been a lot of criticism. He's not winning enough. You know, fortunately that they've done a really good job of understanding of who they are and, and understanding that you're, you're likely not going to win big time uh, at Kentucky, that you've got to be patient and let a coach build his program develop his coaching staff. The facilities are very underrated over there. Um, they've done a really good job there. And I think that they've, they've found good players, but they've been able to develop them. Wilson's starting to become a dual-threat quarterback. Offensive line played well. Listen, this game was won up front. They control the line of scrimmage against Florida. They had turnovers in the game at Kentucky, but they overcame them. They were more physical than Florida. And from Florida's standpoint, look, don't panic there with 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 the Dan Mullen. The talent level is not elite, right there. Okay, at it, it, Florida, it's not elite. I know you look and you say, "Oh, they got more talent than Kentucky." Well, it just individual and counting five stars, yes, they do. Mm-hmm. But in terms of how a team's been developed, no, they don't. And that's going to take time for Dan to develop it. And I think that they didn't play with enough respect for Kentucky. Of course, they made a number of mistakes. I agree. The defense is not very elite, and you don't. You still got issues. With the offense. Now, one quick thing on this going forward. Dan has proven to be a really good coach, a really good developer of quarterbacks. It doesn't happen overnight, folks. As I say, you don't spread pixie dust and it happens. It takes time. That's one thing. The one variable that I would have, not a concern, but a question, can Dan do it? He at Mississippi State recruited a certain type of player and he developed them exceedingly well. Joe Moorhead's done a good job at Mississippi State right now. 
That's a talent that's been left over by Dan Mullen, and mm-hmm. we've seen Dan get Mississippi State to number one in the country. They were the first in the first official rankings that we had in this new playoff format. The first one that ever came out, you know, it was number one Mississippi State in that October. That is ridiculous for Mississippi State to be number one. It is so tough to do that, I can't imagine. Well, they also had Dak Prescott and some well, other Well, they did, players. but yeah. I'm going to tell you something. To be number one in the country at Mississippi State yeah. is an accomplishment that is just ridiculous. I mean, it is incredible. Okay, and they didn't stay there, but that shows how good of a coach he can be in developing. But he's going to have to recruit a different type of player at Florida. If he doesn't recruit at the same level that Georgia's recruiting, that Alabama's recruiting, that A&M's now recruiting – then they're not going to be like those teams. Dan will do a good job of coaching, but good job will mean 10 and 2, 9 and 3, maybe 11 and 1. You're not going to win the East unless you recruit that upper level player and then you develop that upper level player. If they do that, they can challenge Georgia. That's what Georgia's doing. They're getting elite players and they're elite coaching. And Florida's got to show under Dan that they can recruit elite level talent. And quite frankly, it's, it's not off. It's early. It's not off to good. Last year is one thing. First year, they they got a lot of ground to make up to have what I would call an elite class, a Georgia, Alabama, A&M now type class. So let's watch that going forward. But they'll be better during the course of the year. But I don't know that they're not. I don't know that they beat Mississippi State. I don't know how many. They have no shot against Georgia. I mean, they, they're, they're not where Florida fans think. I think a lot of folks at Florida fans think, we got the new coach now. Hey, Jim McElwain was a knuckle, knucklehead and all that stuff. And we just get the new guy and we're going to compete. No, you're not. You're, you're not. Mm-hmm. You're an 8-4 and four team if you do a great coaching job with this team. Pure and simple. Scott Seidenberg here with Chris Landry from LandryFootball.com. It's Rush the Field, a college football podcast for you, the college football fan. And before we get into the games that are coming up this weekend, Chris, I want to play a little game here on the pro on the program. And it's called Running the Option. And you know the option's a staple of college offenses. And so what does ha- what happens during an option play? The quarterback either keeps the ball and runs it himself or pitches the ball away. So we'll go through a variety of topics around the college football world, and you and I will decide whether we want to keep the ball or pitch it. And we don't want to run the ball ourselves. The first question I will bring up and give you an example of how we're going to do it here on the program, Kyler Murray underrated as a passer. And Chris, I'm going to keep this because I think a lot of people in the country view Kyler Murray as this dual threat quarterback, this athletic guy that is going to beat teams with his legs. And that's going to pose some sort of threat with his legs that defenses really have to key in on. But I'm here to say that Kyler Murray is underrated as a passer. We all know the kid was the eighth overall pick in the Major League Baseball draft. He's got a rocket for an arm. And he's shown in the first two games better pocket presence than I expected to see from him at the quarterback position. So I'm keeping and I'm running with this one, Chris, that Kyler Murray is underrated as a passer. Uh, I'm keeping it as well. I think he is not only got a really good arm and he's got a lot of speed. This guy's got a great athletic sense in terms of being able is is um, ball handling is play fakes, you know, running the RPOs, you know, he, they're going to be as productive, but in a different way this year than they were with Baker Mayfield. Kyler Murray's not the same type of passer as Baker Mayfield, nor is he as good a passer as Baker Mayfield. That's okay. He is though a bet lot better than people thought and think. 
they they are going to be a bear to to try to beat in the Big Twelve. They're just good luck trying to stop them. Now, the loss of Rodney Anderson hurts. It hurts their play fake a great deal. They've got talent, but he was a special back. But there's no doubt that he's got ability to be able to beat you through the air. They've got a lot of receiving weapons. They're simply outstanding. So uh, with CeCe Lamb and those guys, um, yeah, I absolutely would keep that. The next topic I'll bring up, Chris, and I'll let you take this one first. Chip Kelly will turn around the UCLA football program within three years. Uh, I'm keeping that as well. Once he gets the type of talent to run what he wants to do, you're already seeing some of the things that they're doing. They're not really talented. That's um, a, a big thing that we got to understand that it, for the first time in UCLA's history, they've got facilities that look like big-time program, and I think that's positive. And Chip has been around, obviously, when they did a lot of good things at Oregon facility-wise. So he knows how he wants to put things infrastructure-wise uh, with nutrition programs, weight program, and recruiting. He's going to, to recruit to an exciting style. He'll get the offense going. He's got a very eclectic mind on the offensive side. Um, no, they'll be fun, and he'll build them, and they'll win. Maybe not national championship caliber good, but I think that they'll be a very big-time force in the Pac-12 South, and um, there, there's no doubt in my mind about that. Well, I'm going to pitch this, Chris, because I think it's going to take a little more than three years, and it's going to take some patience. You mentioned that he needs to get the type of athletes that he needs in that program, and right now he doesn't have it. Wilton Spate is not a Chip Kelly quarterback, and so maybe that quarterback comes in next year, and maybe he starts as a true freshman. Maybe he doesn't. Maybe that guy comes in next year and has to redshirt and then plays as a sophomore in the third year. I think this rebuild is going to take a little bit longer than people expect. I don't see it as Chip Kelly being the magic man that from one year goes from UCLA being a bad team to the next year, UCLA threatening to win the conference. So I'm going to pitch the ball on that one. One more topic, and then we'll get into this weekend's games, Chris. And I'm going to say that LSU, and maybe this has to do with this week's games as well, but I'm saying that LSU is the second threat in the SEC West, not Auburn. You go first. Oh, I'm definitely pitching that. I I think LSU's uh, a little overrated at this point where people, I mean, people, I think, underrated LSU at the beginning of the year because they thought they were going to go six and six. And that was ridiculous. They've got way too much talent on defense um, for that. Then they beat Miami, which I thought was a little overrated. I thought they'd beat Miami, and all of a sudden people think that they're going to you know, be a playoff team. I don't see it. Uh, they Auburn had them beat decisively last year, let them off the hook. They're 7-2 and two in their last nine games they've played in Jordan-Hare. I, I do think that both Auburn and LSU have some issues on offense, but I still think feel a little bit more comfortable where, where Auburn is at this point than LSU. Watching LSU last week, even against Southeast Louisiana, they, they're they not getting enough out of the passing game, and they're not getting enough out of the running game yet. I think everyone's a little overly excited about the, the win against Miami. I mean, I think that's great, but I think we're going to see that uh, that LSU, in my view, is no better than the third, maybe even the fourth team in the West this year. I'm going to agree with you. I'm pitching this ball away because – Maybe it's not so much an indication on LSU, but I am so in love with this Auburn program. I think they might be the third best team in the country behind Alabama and Clemson right now. That's how high I am on the Auburn Tigers. I think they do win this weekend against LSU, but you mentioned it. People are overreacting and living in the moment maybe a little bit too much. 
I don't think LSU should be ranked as the 12th best team in the country. And I get it. Rankings are, you know, it's all semantics and it's arbitrary and it's going to change week to week. But if you look at the ranking right now, number 12, I don't look at LSU and think that they are the 12th best team in the country. So win over Miami was great. Starting 2-0 was great. You like what you see from their offense. Nick Brissett is a real threat at the running back position. But when they step onto the big stage, which is going to begin this weekend at Jordan-Hare, I don't see them even coming close to beating Auburn. Yeah, no, I think we'll, we'll start to find out this week, no doubt. So how do you see that game playing out as we take a look at this weekend's schedule in the top 25? Number seven, Auburn, hosting number 12, LSU. It's the CBS game at 3.30 Eastern time. Well, you know, I think both of these defenses are outstanding. I think that Auburn's defensive front is elite. Uh, I think that their secondary can be attacked, but I don't know that this is this is the type of game in which the, 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 that LSU will be able to take advantage of that. I, I think that what team can get their running game going? And I listen, you got to look at the opponent, of course, but Auburn started to run the football a little bit better last week. That, that's going to be the key. I think Definitely when the defenses are on the field, that's going to be the advantage in this game. I just look at Auburn at home and, in my view, a little bit better play potentially on the offensive line um, and maybe with a little tempo, um, they can be a little bit more effective moving the football on the ground. Now, I do think that LSU will try to be able to We'll try to spread to Auburn out and get rid of, get rid of the ball a little quicker. So we'll see how well that can, that, that can perform. I Again, I just don't see enough offense out of LSU at this point. I have concerns about Auburn's offense, but but a little less so than LSU. And it's Auburn at home, and I can tell you that Auburn feels like they let one go last year. Mm. They were up 20 nothing, and yeah, credit LSU for making adjustments, but it was Auburn that lost the game more than LSU won it. They haven't forgotten that. They were embarrassed by it as a coaching staff. I think it's payback time this week. You can year. look at that game as the reason why Ed Orgeron is still there. <laughs> uh, there's no question after losing to Troy. I mean, they were getting ready to be 0 for 3 in Alabama against Alabama teams last year. <laughs> well, now uh, they'll probably uh, be 0 and 1, I guess, starting this year with uh, the loss to Auburn that we both expect to come here on Saturday. Saturday night, Chris, the big game at the big stadium at Jerry's World. It's TCU hosting Ohio State. Now, this is the final game for Ohio State without Urban Meyer on the sidelines. What have you noticed from them in the first two games with interim head coach Ryan Day? Anything different from the way that you would have look at, looked at them with Urban Meyer calling the shots? No. Um, they, they've, they've so dominated their two opponents, Oregon State and Rutgers, just with their speed. What I notice is Dwayne Haskins just throwing the football over everybody, team speed. I, you know, right now... Um, you know, Alabama's great. Georgia's great. Ohio State's right up there with them in terms of how they looked on tape. Now, defensively, they've kind of let go of the rope a little bit. They haven't played as crisp later, but I don't know. That has been the case sometimes even with Urban. Here's where I think the difference is going to be going forward with, when Urban does come back is it's just going to be less stressful for, for everyone involved, me- meaning as a coaching staff. I, I think that Urban as a head coach can have more game control. It's it's a challenge when you have to divvy up game responsibilities on your staff. So you get a guy like a Greg Schiano. Yeah, he's been a head coach, but he's a defensive coordinator and he's got that responsibility and he's having to give more of that. And he's having to be a little bit more kind of quasi head coach with Ryan. 
that that kind of just stabilizes a little bit. So it's only going to get better. Not that it hasn't been great, but it's going to get a little more seamless in the transition because they're going to let's call it let's call it like it is. They're going to be in games where time management uh, issues uh, and decisions that are game day decisions are going to become more of a factor. To this point, it's only a factor in the margin of victory with with who they've played. And uh, I think that TCU is a good team. You know, it's a quote-unquote air quotes neutral side game. They're 20 20 miles away. Um, But they really don't match up. This is going to be a hard go for them to be able to match up. This Ohio State offense has got a combination of power and explosiveness in the passing game that hadn't existed. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've talked about like you know Clemson and Alabama and the more passing game. L- let's not forget about it. this Ohio State team looks different. I love JT Barrett. JT Barrett can't do what J- Dwayne Haskins does. Yeah, I would agree. So th- this is this is the best, ex- more explosive offense that Ohio State's had since Cordell Jones came in. They're playing their third quarterback and they're going to a national championship. <laughs> so it's going to be awfully tough for TCU. Gary Patterson does a really good job playing situational defense. They'll play them well. But in the end, there's just too many athletes for Ohio State. Uh, Arizona State, Chris, is playing against San Diego yes. State on the road. I, I, I mean, I, I know that Herm Edwards is a good coach. I've obviously watched him with the Jets as a Jet fan, and mm-hmm. and we all know his his pedigree. But I think people were maybe uh, you know weary about what was going to happen at the collegiate level. But for the first through the first two games, and especially that win over Michigan State, Herm Edwards has this team ready to play. Are we talking about a 3-0 and Arizona State team after this weekend? Well, I think they should be. I mean, they're more talented. Here's the thing. My, my concern with Herm is long-term and, and the stability of how he can put this together. Time will tell him that. I've felt like this Arizona State team is a lot more talented than people know. I mean, I thought this was a nine-win team coming into it. Manny Wilkins is an outstanding quarterback. Uh, Nikhil Harry is as good a receiver as there yeah, is in the country. Yeah, he makes a lot of plays. Mm-hmm. Um, look, I mean, it, it, when you're looking at from a talent standpoint, uh, they match up well against Michigan State talent-wise. Uh, I think Washington's a challenge. I think USC's got more talent, but but they're not very well coached on offense. Um, I, I actually think that this this Arizona State team can have a successful season, but I want to see the consistency, and, and I want to see long-term what they're able to do recruiting wise. And if they lose coaches, you know, what they're going to be able to do to replace those, that's going to be the real challenges to how good they can be. Um, I'm more, more surprised by what's not happened at Arizona than I have been about what's happened at Arizona state. You know, a sneaky good game that many people might just kind of you know gloss over Boise state and Oklahoma state, Chris, I think there could be some fireworks in this game. It's a really close spread. So it could come down to the end, but I see points in this game. I see back and forth in this game. And I think, yeah, it could come down to who, who has the ball last. This Boise state team is really good. I mean, they're dominated opponents and we're not talking bad opponents here. They've, they played some teams that are, you know, decent and they've just dominated them. Um, this is going to be a challenge going on the road. But I like their chances of playing well. I think Oklahoma State's got you know better personnel overall at home, probably win it. But this is a game that they relish in, in making a statement. Now, this is a really good team. And I'm going to tell you, Brian Harson is a bright, bright star. And we'll talk about it later in the year. But this is a guy that we've seen the lineage of coaches yeah. leave that program. This guy is another one that has been around a lot of good pro. 
you know, not just a Boise guy, but went out to different places, learned, came back, and it's proven that Boise is still Boise. Uh, and a lot of it has to do with good coach after good coach after good coach. And if you're asking me the best coach that Boise's ever had, it's been Chris Peterson, but Brian Harson is definitely second best. And that's saying a lot because Dan Hawkins did a good job. Their cutter did a good job. You can go on and on. But but uh, Brian's done a good job, and I think this is going to be a fun one in Stillwater. Can Ole Miss give Alabama any sort of problems this weekend? Because the game is in Oxford, which Alabama's never mm-hmm. afraid to play there, but you do have to give the Rebels a little bit of a boost at home. Yeah, no, playing at home, uh, playing with a lot of emotion, but it, it's kind of, I said, and it's a different style of game, but it, it's kind of like the the South Carolina against Georgia. Yeah. You know, we'll see how this, the, the talent level's significantly Too big of a difference. Uh, different. Here, mm-hmm. Here's the thing about it. Uh, Ole Miss... They've got the best and deepest receiving core in the country. Uh, Jordan Tamu is phenomenal. This guy is just making unbelievable throws, um, and they are really good offensively. Yeah, as good Brown. as they off, as good as they are offensively, Wesley McGriff's defense is just as bad. I mean, <laughs> Southern Illinois is running the football on them. This is to me. Here's how I anticipate Nick playing this game is I think they're going to shorten the game. I think they can run the football. The The issue is, I know the the sexy matchup is, well, what's Alabama going to do against this Ole Miss offense? You know, what's this Ole Miss defense going to do against this Alabama offense? And mm-hmm. I don't think it's smart. I think Alabama could come out and throw the football on Ole Miss and score a bunch of points. That's not how you play the game in my mind. I think you make some big plays in the passing game as they're going to overplay the run. But then you run the football right at Ole Miss and keep that Ole Miss off the field. Uh, you know, Nick Saban does not want to win a game 50 to 30. Okay, I'm just telling you. You know, he's fine with 50 to 10. He ain't happy with 50 to 30. He'd be <laughs> much happier with, you know, 30 to 12, you know, 30 to 10. He, he wants to control this game. And this is, I think, a challenge to say, all right, let's not want, let's not take too big of a bite at the apple on offense. Let's be smart. Let's be surgical. Let's take advantage of big plays, but let's just run the football down their throat, wear them out, and then, you know, get that def- get that offense having to play from behind, which they have not had to really do, Ole Miss I'm talking about, and then we'll see what we can do against Ole Miss. So I think it's going to be a challenge to – Hey, this is a style we want to impose on Ole Miss. And then, oh, by the way, defensively, when we got to defend all those receivers, how we can match up. But we need to make sure that we do it and not trying to play a shootout game. Because yeah. if you play a shootout game, you're giving Ole Miss's chances, which may be about 5%, and you're probably bumping it up to 45%. Well, that doesn't make any sense to do that because if Alabama controls the football and plays power football, Ole Miss's chances, you know, other than just the obligatory 5%, anything can happen, uh, that's all they got. One final game that I want to ask you about, USC going on the road to face Texas. Uh, Texas with a disappointing start to the season, picked things up, of course, uh, with the victory last week against Tulsa. How do you see them handling the Trojans? This is a big game. I mean, it's a big game for a different reason, not because these teams are going to be playing for anything. I'm not impressed with USC's offense. They were completely manhandled by Stanford. Uh, offensive line struggling, young quarterback struggling. 
not what I would call well coached on offense, defense hanging in. They're, they're playing better defensively than Texas is. So I think USC is a little better, but I, I'm not going to stand on the table for either one of these teams. If Texas loses this game, it starts to get ugly. Uh, ugly, er, excuse me. Um, that schedule gets tougher and tougher. And, you know, I, I think there's a real problem. Uh, you got TCU next, then you go to Kansas State, you got Oklahoma. Uh, I, I think this is a game in which Tom Herman needs in a big way. Clay Helton needs it. I, I think that Clay's probably under more pressure, meaning if, if he goes six and six or seven and five, I think he's gone. I think Tom Herman survives, of course, this he's going to get his third year. So in terms of the quote-unquote pressure, maybe it's a little bit more on Clay, but trust me, pressure in terms of it's getting uncomfortable, it's already uncomfortable in Austin, mm-hmm. and it gets worse if USC wins this game. I thought Texas, after a bad start last year, started to play well at this time, and this was the game last year where they really outplayed USC and didn't get it done. We'll see what happens in this game in Austin if they could find a way to get it. Big game, I think, for the, as we call, the quality of life for coaches. Yeah, <laughs> yeah they won't be, they'll, they'll be making a firetomherman.com if, uh, if they lose <laughs> this game. They haven't already? I'm surprised. <laughs> oh, I don't know. I Somebody's asleep at the wheel. I, somebody's missing an opportunity. I, I'm just I'm so disappointed in those folks. Uh, Chris, on a more serious note, Uh, The games at Virginia Tech, NC State, and North Carolina have already been canceled because of the uh, coming storm. Hurricane Florence is picking up steam, and those games are going to be canceled, which they should as a precaution. Other games around the country might be as well. But how does this affect the program when your game gets canceled? How do you adjust your schedule? How do you adjust your preparation? Because you have this game circled on your schedule. You start preparing for it even before your previous game is concluded, and now you find out that you're not playing, and you might not play them until a later time in the season, if at all. How does this affect the program? Well, the first thing you do is, as a football staff, a coaching staff, you go as business as usual until it is completely canceled. So you're right. You know, the games that are canceled, that they've done the preparation uh you, you table that stuff, you have all the data, you have all the film, you have all that logged, and you pick that up if you can find a way to play. Administratively, this is the challenge. Everybody immediately looks at two things. Do we have a mutual open date? Um, okay, we don't. All right, then what about that week, you know, of the conference championship games? That's another opportunity. You know, if you're not in a conference championship game, can we make it up then? Um, you know, there are, in fact, I've, for example, Nebraska's game got canceled. They find out there is a open date between Nebraska and Central Florida, mutual open date. And they're thinking, well, hell, won't you, won't you play it? You know, there, there's a lot of that that you look at. So that's how you handle it administratively. For your players, you try to keep them, you know, with the distractions as minimal as possible. But obviously, uh, the most important thing is the safety and the health of and course. the prayers for everybody there. But just you don't, in advance of it, you keep an eye on it, but but you keep them isolated and you prepare because you don't know what's going to happen. I, I grew up around the hurricanes, storms change, and if you got a game and you sat there and wasted a day, you, you can't have that. So uh, I do think it's going to be interesting. There is a big game on Thursday, Boston College, Wake Forest, in the ACC. Now, my understanding, correct me if I'm wrong, Scott, 
they have moved that up. So that is probably, it looks like that's going to be a 5.30 Eastern, 4.30 Central kickoff now, which it was normally set for 7.30 yes. Eastern. So um, it looks like Wake Forest, excuse me, uh, West Virginia, NC State's going to be lost. That's tough. That's big for for West Virginia, a team that's every game that they've played is in a Power 5 team. Mm-hmm. This is a team that if they're able to navigate through the Big 12, you know, how does this affect them? I mean, let's just look ahead. That's the one team there that you might say could be in playoff conversation. I'm not sure that they're a playoff caliber team, but let's just go with it at this point. If they're doing business in the Big 12, uh, how does it, you know, how does this affect them with one less game? That's where you'd really work to try to make it up. But again, they can't make it up on conference championship week if they're playing Oklahoma that week. Correct. So how do you deal with that? Uh, it becomes complicated. How does the committee look at it? All those things that you really can't answer at this point, but it just goes to show you some of the complexities, but that is of minimal consequence at this point. What's important is the safety and well-being of of everyone in the eyes of the storm. Very well said. Uh, The folks at LandryFootball.com want you to join their family this football season. Get in on all the inside information and analysis on the college and pro game from film room breakdowns to the latest inside information, recruiting, draft, coaching news, all this and more. And don't forget, each Tuesday and Thursday, catch the Landry Football Podcast. And each Wednesday, new episodes of this, Rush the Field College Football Podcast. Both of them, absolute must listens check out landryfootball.com today for their best season membership package ever for less than a magazine subscription you can have access to the insights of a veteran coach and scout tell them where you heard this to receive the best membership package available chris i go to landryfootball.com this week what am i finding uh, you're finding all the film room reviews of, of just about every every team we break down and get as much of that up there as possible and we get that done Usually on Tuesday, we get through as much film as we can. Obviously, we're going to get the game previews up starting Wednesday and Thursday so that you'll have all the game film room previews for the upcoming week. So we review it, we preview it, give you all the latest news and notes. So if you're a college football fan, uh, it's one-stop shopping. Yeah, and if you are curious about which team to lean towards in your picks or whatnot, I highly recommend the film room uh, previews because they have helped me so far for the first two weeks of the college football season. Chris breaks it down, tells you exactly what to expect, how the teams are going to approach the game, much like we do here on this podcast. Don't forget to follow Chris on Twitter at LandryFootball. You can follow me on Twitter at ScottsOnAir and subscribe to Rush the Field, which can be found on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, Google Play, and RadioInfluence.com. Hey, Scott, and you know, before we go, let, let's uh, I think you would join me in you know sending our thoughts and prayers. Everyone, as we know, uh, September 11th, the 17th year anniversary uh, on a Tuesday, as we yes. we uh, talk about this uh, podcast and get it up for everybody on a Wednesday, I think we can all remember where we are 17 years ago. Uh, and uh, as time passes, uh, it seems like it is just uh, it hit me a little bit more because it's on a Tuesday because I can remember the Tuesday and when it happened. And uh, we as time moves on and everybody moves about their lives, it's just uh, a thought I know Scott and I would like to share that. You know, for everybody, and Scott, of course, grew up in that area and at New York. It affects everybody around the country, but every year, particularly in the New York area, there's a lot of focus, a lot of tribute. We'll never forget the folks that uh, were the victims and their families that have suffered throughout the 17 years and all the sacrifices of the men and women of the armed forces that protect us. 
um, in a what was a very dark day in this country that uh, in a day will none of us will ever forget that went through it. That's extremely well said, Chris. You know, uh, yeah, I don't like to talk about it much. It was a very difficult day um, in my life, a very difficult day in my friends' lives. Uh, you know, for full disclosure, my father was there. He got out. Uh, that is one of the things I am most thankful for in my life. But I have friends that weren't as lucky as I was. But what I do remember after that was the role that sports played in the healing process, being being an outlet for people to go to and sort of get back to a sense of normalcy and watching whether it was Mike Piazza hitting the home run for the Mets uh, mm-hmm. on the 23rd or whether it was the Yankees in the World Series later that year or even the Jets and the Giants playing in football games after the week uh, two of the NFL season was canceled, it gave people an opportunity to cheer and smile and laugh and kind of look around and say, hey, this is normal life. We're allowed to live our normal lives. We don't have to live in fear. We don't have to change what we do on an everyday basis. We can be normal once again. And so we look back uh, with memories and just like you said, Chris, our thoughts, our prayers, our wishes are with everybody uh, who was ever affected by it. We will never forget it, and we can just admire the way that our country has come through it and the way we continue to come through adversity. And that goes uh, just as much for this weekend. Um, hopefully the hurricane is not as devastating as they are expecting it to be. But if it is, we know that we will come through it because as a country, we always do. Absolutely. Amen. This is an In the Trenches with Ian Beckles. Quick Fix on Radio Influence. For a competitor like Jameis to be home watching that game or wherever he watched the game, you want your team to win because ultimately it's going to be important that your team goes to the playoffs and you go to the Super Bowls and kind of things like that. So this is supposedly, allegedly, your team. You're going to want the Buccaneers to win. But show enough. You do not want Ryan Fitzpatrick to play that way. No way. I guarantee after that game, Jameis was like, oh boy, here it comes because it's coming. And deservedly so. It's not like Ryan Fitzpatrick threw for 15 for 25 for 190 yards and we won 17 to 13. That ain't it. Like Ryan Fitzpatrick was one of the better quarterbacks in the whole NFL yesterday. Okay, you don't want to look ahead and you don't want to talk about what if he plays two more games like that, because that's that's a long shot. People that was like one in a century game for an old quarterback. And this doesn't happen very often, whether he's going to be a good quarterback. That's up to him. But that's not going to happen again. We don't know if that, if that was Ryan Fitzpatrick. We don't know if that's the Saints defense just being awful. We don't know if it's because it's the first week of the season, but. It had to have been painful for Jameis Winston to sit back and watch Ryan Fitzpatrick win in that fashion. It had to be painful for Jameis to watch his teammates hugging Ryan Fitzpatrick like he's the dude. That's got to be hard. Whatever way this thing unfolds, and I don't know how it is going to unfold. I just don't. Nobody does. I'm not Dirk Cutter. Nobody. It's going to be uncomfortable. Because Ryan Fitzpatrick, the way he played, Looks like a guy that wants to be on that football field. That's for sure. He he enjoyed himself. 
if he plays anywhere close to that for the next two weeks, it's all on in Tampa. I mean, it's the, the, the soap opera begins. That's for sure. In the Trenches with Ian Beckles can be found on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, Google Play, and RadioInfluence.com.